Hi, this is Jim Campbell, the host of Forensic Talk and Business Talk with Jim Campbell and the author of the just out new book, Madoff Talks, uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. And you're listening to the Lake Forest Podcast. Welcome to the Lake Forest Podcast, a podcast about the lovely city of Lake Forest, featuring topics like local news, sports, music, people, and food. My name is Pete, and I'm joined with my co-host, Scoo Walker. We both live in Lake Forest. Scoo, we have a sponsor for the show, NeuroNoodle. Get a doodle of your noodle. Now that we're starting to get back into live sports, your kids get a physical, right? Well, you should also get a brain map so they can have a baseline to compare it to so you can help determine if your kid should get back on the field. Hey, we just had the lacrosse championships uh, last week. Any idea what happened, Scoo? I know the well. The girls lost, I think, in the quarterfinals, and the uh, the boys took it to the finals and lost eleven nine to Loyola. And actually, Loyola boys and girls ended up winning both state championships. I think they need to be investigated. Anyways, (laughs) figure out if you can't you get back on the field. Neuronoodle.com. Good people over there. Okay, one of the goals of the podcast is to shed light on our local people doing good. And today we're joined by Jim Campbell, host of Forensic Talk and Biz Talk radio show and the author of the best-selling Madoff Talks. We recently had author David Sweet on and he suggested bringing Jim on as he has the, the new book out. David, thanks for suggesting Jim. And Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's my honor. I, I've I had not met David Sweet in person until last week when I was out presenting at the casino in uh, Chicago, right next to the John Hancock Tower. And David Sweet is one class act, a great guy. Uh, He grew up in Lake Forest as well. His father, uh, very close friends with my dad. So he told me he'd uh, suggested. So, yeah, it's a great, great to be honored. And I love David. Great, great guy. Very cool guy. Now, now, Jim, you went to uh, in your youth, you went to you were in Lake Forest, right? I was in Lake Forest. I went to Lake Forest Country Day School. And as I said uh, before we came on, we've got generations of family here from the Hubbard side, which is my mom's side of the family. And uh, my dad came over uh, after the war and his uncle happened to be in Lake Forest, lived in the in the backyard my mother lived, right across their backyard. And even though there was nine years age difference, they ended up getting married down the road. So uh <laughs> Lake Forest is uh, in my bloodstream. What part of town? You don't have to give me an address, but I, I grew up and um, where I lived before I went off to boarding school was on Elm Tree Road, right over by the lake. And okay. my mo- my mother grew up on Wisconsin Road, right behind the Winter Club. You know, near them yeah, yeah. and the whole up the street from the Holy Spirit. And yeah, yeah. Uh, his uh, my dad's uncle. My dad was Russian on his mother's side, and his Russian uncle lived right, literally adjacent to my Hubbard family, grandfather, mother's father. So that's where uh, we, we, uh, we grew up. And my dad now still lives in Lake Forest. He's at Lake Forest Place, which is out, you know, near the Northwestern Lake Forest yeah, Hospital yeah, yeah. there. In the, I am actually presenting at Lake Forest Place on July 15th in honor of my dad. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. What, one of our other hosts, uh, Arthur Miller, he's a historian for Lake Forest. He's at Lake Forest Place. And, uh, we're, we're trying to uh, get somebody from, from there to come on the show because we've heard so many nice things about, about that place and put a spotlight on them as well. 
Now, now, Jim, how did you get started in, in writing? I mean, you have your radio show. How did this all yeah. start? Well, Peter was obviously talked about the luck of uh, the draw, Bernie yeah. passing away right as the book was coming out. I was just doing a, a, a radio interview uh, on a show that the author, woman named Lori Sandell, had cooperated with Andrew Madoff, the son of Bernie, on a book about the family. And she said out of the blue, um, I can connect you to talk to Andrew off the record. He Obviously, he's not going to go public. We spoke off the record. I grilled him uh, brutally, and somehow yeah. uh, he liked talking to me. And he said, I'm going to listen to your show tomorrow because it was live then and see if you're saying the same kinds of things you're saying now. So he did. And then we spoke. By coincidence, his mother, Ruth Madoff, was moving from Florida, old Greenwich, Connecticut, which is where I live. So I said, I'll take her out for lunch. Um, and he set that up. We had a great lunch. She was very comfortable talking to me as well until we were walking out. And I said, Ruth, can we get a picture together? And she said, you're wired, aren't you? She thought I'd set her up, but not true. <laughs> so we took a picture. The next thing I know, she introduces me to Bernie Madoff in prison through the um, email system. And the next thing I know, Bernie and I had 400 pages of communications over eight years. And so I didn't set out to be a writer or to write a book. But I suddenly found myself with 400 pages of, uh, of, you know, unrestrained Bernie Madoff and had to figure out what to do with it. And that's how the whole thing uh, came apart. The family who doesn't know me from dirt, essentially, yeah, ended yeah. up tr trusting me with their legacy. There had to be a trust thing in there, right? I'm sure they're like, hey, are you wired? You know, you, you know, yeah, you're yeah, recording yeah. any uh, that type yeah, of thing. Yeah, no, it, it was all trust. And I don't understand. I'll never know exactly why. They decided to trust me. Um, Andrew's uh, girlfriend named Catherine Hooper, who basically really helped him get through all this stuff. Uh, and she was very anxious to that Andrew and Andrew's kids' legacies um, be fixed to the extent they could. She, she, to the depth of her heart, she didn't believe that Andrew knew about the crime. She, and this is trust. She told me, she says, Jim, if you find it, I'm going to accept accepted if you found that he knew she was good to her word she helped get information to me she got me access to Bernie's diaries all kinds of things people inside the firm and again uh, she I, they never saw a word of the book until it came out I was on CBS Sunday morning right before the book came out because of uh, Bernie's passing away suddenly and that was the first time she heard me talk about the book in any way because she and her father listened she said her father was giving her play-by-play -play as I spoke. And you were just on uh, PBS Friday, right? I was on PBS Wall Street Wrap-Up on Friday night with um, Andrew Laborde. So, yeah, very nice guy. So, man, the, the let's see. Bernie passes, what, April, end of April, April 29th, something like that? He got okay. April, about middle of April, and my book was coming out April 27th. All right, so the book comes out, and you know, I got I got so many questions in here, but some of the things that I I, I got the Kindle version. You can't read it once; you have to keep going back. I mean, there are highlights all over the place, but I'm just going to uh, go through some of my notes here, and then you can okay. talk to whatever you want to get to. Now, okay. you're you're a Dartmouth guy, right? Yes, I went to business school at okay. Dartmouth. All right, so you're a smart guy. Okay, got it. I don't and, know about that, but. All right. Well, you went to school with Jamie Dimon, though, right? I did. Very good. You did read it closely. Yeah, that was at okay. Tufts. Tufts undergraduate. Okay. Uh, Tufts undergraduate. Okay. So, but he's supposed to be a smart guy, right? Yeah, he's a smart guy. He's a smart guy. Okay. 
How did he get sucked into the, How did Chase get yeah. sucked into all this, Jim? You know, that's a really good question because I have to tell you, I got to give Jamie a lot of credit because, as you know, in the book, J.P. Morgan really screwed up. I mean, badly. If they'd even yeah. looked into the account in any way, shape or form, they would have figured out that it wasn't doing what Bernie claimed it was doing. And the bank was the only entity that had any access into what Bernie's real finances were, right? Everything else that was hidden from the feeder funds, the hedge fund guys, none of them had access to it. And J.P. Morgan never even figured out it was for his Ponzi fund, hedge fund account. They thought it was for his, you know, Bernie had a legitimate market making business. But um, so, you know, I go to Jamie and I say, you know, would you let me speak to your folks thinking that there's no way in hell he would ever want to do that because it's only going to be, you know, look bad. Very nicely, he, he gave me access to folks that had been involved in trying to figure out what went on there is from his legal staff. And not only that, I was enough of a jerk to ask him at a time and he had just almost had near death heart surgery. He, you know, and, and, and at the same time, Irving Picard, for folks who don't know, he was the bankruptcy trustee charged with getting money back for Madoff's victims. He was viewed as being, quote, highly successful, and he refused to see me three times. Jamie let me in, and he was perceived, rightly so, as being highly unsuccessful. In fact, once the book was came out, I sent uh, an email to Jamie. I said, you know, I'd like to send you a book if you want. I'm not going to be insulted if you don't want to read it because you're not going to be happy with what you see, but sure enough, he asked to get the book. So he has it. I don't know if we're friends anymore, but he has the book. <laughs> Chase uh, Bank did not acquit themselves well. Uh, they missed it in so many different ways. It's almost uh, embarrassing to look at. But, you know, Bernie built a reputation of trust over several years. Yeah. And uh, the SEC, worse than Jamie, really, the SEC missed five separate investigations. They kept even investigating stuff they'd already cleared him on. And this reinvestigated it again on it. So, you know, Bernie used to say to me, everybody thinks my family knew. The SEC couldn't even find it. Why should my family have been able to find it? Well, he has a point there. <laughs> so the SEC, I mean, there was a point there where, where Madoff said, okay, uh, I forget what the number's called. Here, uh, here's the number. We're going to go yeah. investigate it. They go away, and they never check on it. Because no, he gave, don't talk to Yeah. He said there's an account at the Depository Trust Corporation, which clears set trades on Wall Street. And Bernie's account was 646. And his market-making business ran every trade through there completely legitimately. So he's, he offered up the account number to the SEC on a Friday night. He told me it was, he said it's 646. Just call them up and they'll verify that the, the hedge fund account has a sub-account in the 646 account. You'll find it. Everything will be, you know, kosher. He says, Jim, I'm expecting to be in handcuffs by Sunday after I gave him that number and nobody from the SEC bothered to call the depository trust company and say, Hey, could you tell us about the 646 account? Could you show us where the investment advisory AIA business is? Uh, it's a sub account and they never called. And, and that was a five minute, one of the, one of the several five minute examples of how Bernie could have been uncovered and the SEC, apparently they either didn't work weekends or they didn't make phone calls. Everybody thinks Bernie made all this money. You had uh, four four entities there that made a little bit more than Bernie. You want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you you read the book a little bit more than you're letting on here, Pete. The, um, <laughs> yeah, he had four big investors who he called the big four, um, who periodically bailed him out of cash crises, which meant they came to have the power to extort 
the returns they were looking at. I, I called the uh, Ponzi scheme in some ways a reverse Robin Hood because yeah. Bernie, Bernie took the money from his what I would call average net worth investors and siphoned it off to the high net worth guys, the biggest of, of whom was a guy named Jeffrey Pickhauer. Who, who made seven billion? That's billion dollars out of with a the B. Ponzi. Yeah, uh, with a B out of the Ponzi fund. Bernie himself stole eight hundred million to prop up his legitimate business, uh, the market making business. So in that case, uh, Pickhauer took nine times what Bernie did. Now Bernie's family also got money as well, but um, the, the big picture of it was that um, Bernie didn't run this for his own personal sense of greed. Um, but there were guys in it who certainly made out, and Pickhauer was the was the biggest of the big. And that was one of the things that a lot of people don't recognize is that this was a huge criminal tax fraud scheme too, because Pickhauer was just dictating, you know, capital gains losses so they didn't have to pay taxes on the money that he was stealing from Bernie, and he never got prosecuted for that. They got back that seven billion, but he never went to jail, nor did any of the hedge fund guys who actually. Uh, took all their investors' money and fed it right to Bernie. So it was not, it's not a pretty story. So you have all this going on. Bernie's just like, you know, it's going on. He's like, I can't believe I'm not getting busted here. And <laughs> was some of his strategy to get some of the funds in their lottery tickets? A nuclear, he was hoping for a nuclear bomb or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was so desperate at the end. Um, he told me that Jim says, I was hoping there'd be a nuclear bomb that would explode Wall Street and all my files would be disappeared. So I wouldn't have to admit that there was never any money in it there. And you're right on the lottery tickets, by the way. The investigators found that his warehouse in Long Island near the old Bulova clock building, a famous building in, in on Long Island. Um, they found boxes of uh, lottery tickets and nobody knew exactly what they were. But I, my guess is that he was actually so desperate for money. He was buying lottery tickets as well, hoping he'd hit the uh, jackpot there. So there was there was no stone that uh, that Bernie left unturned to try to keep that thing going. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he did. Was, there was neither a nuclear attack, which was good for mankind, uh, yeah, nor did yeah. he seem nor, nor did he seem to win the lottery. Um, um, and you know, again, but you know, we we're joking. If if there hadn't been that financial crash, I I predict that he'd still be in business to this day. And he'd be out. He'd be up to the tune of two hundred and forty billion dollars of fake profits. We'll, we'll take a break from Bernie for a second. Okay, Jim, you got any thoughts on uh, Robinhood payment order flow? You got any uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I will. I, I I like to talk about that because I'm so pissed off about it. The um, <laughs> yeah, I, I read in the paper all the time how those firm Robinhood, which is an online trading firm is such a hero. They're, they're beating Wall Street down and the big bad hedge funds, and they're offering free trading to people. Well, you know, first off, anytime someone tells you they're giving you something for free, you make sure you look in the small print first, um, because there's not a lot of stuff that's really free. And, you know, what they call free trading, how do they do that? They direct their trades to these exchanges that are called dark pools that nobody can really see what's going on. And in return, they're actually getting a rebate for sending their customers flow there. And, um, and that rebate basically is coming out of the prices that the uh, customers could get those trades executed for. What they think is free, they're not paying a commission directly, but they were getting inferior pricing execution 
And when the SEC looked at it, the, that inferior price execution was so bad, they would have been better off paying commissions uh, at a competitor. The, the great irony of all this is that Bernie invented payment for order flow, this giving a rebate in return for getting customers uh, trade flow. But he never cheated their customers on getting their best prices because firms like Robinhood are supposed to have a requirement to get the best price execution they can for their clients. And Bernie paid for order flow by giving them a few cents back, but still giving them the best pricing. But, you know, even more so than, you know, sort of picking the pockets of, 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 the, of Robinhood's clients is obsessive trading never ends well. Folks buying these stocks of companies that are actually lousy companies like GameStop and because <laughs> they think it's free, it's a really bad disservice they're doing their customers. They're turning the market into totally a casino, which it is enough as it bad enough as it is. They're getting them. They're throwing money after bad stocks because they think it's free, not going to cost them anything, and it's going to always end badly. So I'm not a big fan of Robinhood. You know, be you know, be careful. Don't don't invest in stuff you don't understand. And and if you think you're getting a big deal just because it's free trading, no. You're not. In fact, you know what? Warren Buffett says the best thing to do is invest in a low cost index fund slowly over the years. In fact, the market's done nine percent a year for 100 years. Bernie himself was only offering 11 percent at the end. And I always say, take the nine percent and sleep at night. I mean, when you guarantee, well, I forget what the number is, 18 percent, you know, yeah, yeah. never go. How, how can that be? I know we're getting back it's, to the SEC and whatnot, but still. The investors, they're getting those statements and they're looking at it. You know, if you get a statement, you got to see what their take is or commission. And in some cases, they would be uh, no number in there or the price ranges didn't match for that day. What else was going on with it? Just about everything he did was completely fake on that. Um, and, and you're right. He was um, telling folks that he was doing this really sophisticated, non-transparent, Nobody understood strategy, right? The thing is, yeah. uh, it was very simple conceptually. It was designed to mirror the stock market. Well, wait a minute. If it's mirroring the stock market, how can it only go up? No one's ever seen the stock market go up 100% of the time. So Bernie had this little thing that he would say, just like that, Pete, I'm giving you 8% a year. I know it's yeah. only January, 18%, sorry, 18%. I know it's only January 1st, but I'm really comfortable you're going to get that 18% come December 1st. And sure enough, right around November, he'd look and he'd say, oh, my God, Pete's only made 7% so far. we got to go do some you know, monkeying around here in this file, buy him some phony stocks and get him to 18%. And lo and behold, magically, on December 31st, Pete's earned 18%. Begs the question, of, he was telling people that he was trading in only in equity stocks, uh, that it should have mirrored the market. Well, then how come it never looked like the market? The market goes up and down all the time. And yeah. Bernie only went only went up. So it was called a split strike conversion strategy. Yeah, I never found a big I never found a victim or even anybody in the legitimate side that understood what the hell it was and what it meant. And uh, and it was really crazy because all it meant was it should mirror the stock market, which, of course, would have been right away a giveaway that it couldn't do what it said he was doing. Well, Jim, it had to be because of the uh, sophisticated uh, computer equipment he had, right? The servers yeah, no, that I, he had. What, what? Yeah, he, he was, he was, you know, he had a legitimate business that had state-of-the-art equipment and was a leader on Wall Street. And then you go downstairs, and in the hedge fund, he's running a $65 billion Ponzi scheme on two IBM servers 
uh, AS400s that were basically extinct in 1980. And somehow he, he kept them going. And it's true, as, as, as the investigator told me, they were largely big printers. They were just making stuff up and printing it out. Um, and I took a, the FBI took uh, custody of the equipment. But when they were finished with it, they gave it back to the forensic investigators. I asked if they would show me. It was locked in a closet at Duff and Phelps in Midtown Manhattan, literally like stuffed at a corner. And I came in myself and I, with my phone, I took pictures of these things, just never got over the fact that these old beat up machines were running $65 billion Ponzi scheme uh, for Bernie Madoff. Okay, we'll take another break from Bernie. Jim, tell us about your uh, radio show. How long, when did you start it? How long has it been yeah. going on? Who do you, who? Yeah, thank you. Ironically, you know, Bernie went down in 2008 in the crash. I actually, just by coincidence, started this show around then because I realized that um, this whole financial crash had gone down. The Western global economic system almost collapsed and nobody knew why. Nobody knew what these mortgage credit default swaps and derivatives right. and all these. Nobody even knew what that was. And I said, I kind of had this interest. You know, I was dry. I had a vending business that I owned and I was on the road a lot driving around and I'm hearing all this talk radio and all I could say was it's it's all, you know, sound bites and it's all one side versus the other. No one's listening. I said, well, I wanted to do something a little bit, you know, dive a little deeper and, you know, help teach people what's, what was going on in this case in, in the business world and then in the crime world, um, sort of based on facts, not based on, you know, ideology or, you know, two two sentence uh, sound bites and whatever. So that's how it all started. And I got into this. Um, and uh, so the timing was good on that because uh, literally uh, we went into the financial crisis. And so I helped explain how Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and then Bernie Madoff and all yeah. these things that, that, that happened. And we added the crime show forensic talk after that, where we became kind of the expert in some of the big murders that were out there, as well as business and crime often overlapped, as you notice, <laughs> with Bernie. So there was some uh, joint... Uh, there's some joy. We were able to air some shows on both, uh, some interviews on both shows. Well, I mean, we keep talking about your luck, but I think there must have been some preparation behind it because talk to us. Uh, what happened with the uh, Tyco CEO, uh, Dennis yeah, Keslowski? I mean, you know, there was, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the first one, the first big interview uh, like that of a, of a description. People joke after a while that you have to be on prison to get on my show. Uh, sometimes it seemed like it seemed like uh -oh. that, but. Governor, yeah, yeah. Elliot, Elliot Spitzer, um, well, the governor of New York, um, I got the first interview with him after he resigned. And people don't realize this because the Internet, you know, was still rather young then. When when Elliot Spitzer had to resign, it was the biggest inter Internet hits at one time uh, in the world. And he was resigning and it was the, it, was, it was just everything was exploding. And uh, I got him on about a month after he went down. And he's a brilliant guy. Another guy that, you know, fatal flaws uh, that took him down. And that was the first, you know, real big, um, you know, international guy that I, that I got on the show. And he wasn't talking to anybody else at the time either for obvious reasons. And uh, I got him on because um, he wanted to come back into politics. And the guy that had written the book on his recovery become a friend of mine on the show. So he came on. Dennis Kozlowski was uh, uh, another interesting thing because 
people might not remember this too, but Tyco at one point was the fastest growing company in America. He was being compared to Jack Welch as the greatest CEO of his generation. He was on the cover of uh, Forbes magazine as the uh, number one CEO at the time. And along with the uh, Bernie Evers, the head of MCI and some of the other big guys uh, that went down, you'll heard Enron was the biggest case. And they went down the same time Enron did. But Tyco was a little different in that Tyco, there was financial uh, irregularities, but it was not a fraudulent company. In other words, it was Tyco was really making money and everything. Enron was a giant financial fraud, but they both went down at the same time. So Koslowski get this was sent to jail for 10 years, double the length of the average murder set uh, at the time. Yeah. And he came out, he had his only interview uh, at all was 60 minutes. And then when he came out of prison, I was the only interview he did uh, since then. And he is, um, he's since gone on to prison reform. He's a very nice guy. He's a very soft spoken guy. He met his wife was a wall street research analyst who covered him when he was in Tyco. And when he went to prison, she contacted him. Great story. And said, you know, is there anything I can do for you? You, you know, and he said, you know what, I'm getting no visitors. Can you just come visit me? And they ended up getting married. And, um, when, when he came on my show, I convinced her she was with him in the studio. She clearly was behind a lot of his survival. So I convinced her to come on and do a segment right while she was in the studio. And we ended up becoming friends with the, with the families. We, she invited my wife and I to his 50th or 60th birthday party that they held in New York City. So we stayed in touch. And uh, that's, the, that, that's the Dennis Kozlowski story, really. Okay. And by the way, what a story he was. He came from total poverty in Newark um, up to, you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars and giving donations. He, they named the business school at, at the College of New Jersey after him and things like that. All went down the tube, and he went to he, he went to prison. Uh, Rumi Khan, who you yeah. um, was also on my show. I don't know if you guys remember, but Raj Rajaratan was the single biggest insider trading scandal ever uncovered. And Rumi Khan not only went to prison for that, but even after they gave her immunity to testify against Raj Rajaratan, for some reason yeah. she was dumb enough to continue to try and do another round of insider trading and got got caught twice and um but she came on my show and uh you know barbara walters would make people cry i had never made anybody cry she's the first person on my show that cried and she <laughs> said you know jim i i can't catch a break and i, I said well Rumi, first off if you go to prison and you come out and you really repent americans like to give people a second chance so as long as you don't try and <laughs> insider trade for the third yeah. time i guarantee they'll give you but um so, but she's came on the show twice and she cried actually both times, but um, also highly intelligent person, you know, overcome by total greed. And Raj Rajaratan is one of the most corrupt people I have ever, in, in, you know, uncovered in Wall Street history. I mean, this guy, he thought all trading should be insider trading. He didn't want to talk to you unless you had insider information to him on quarterly performance. And, you know, he had women, uh, Rumi, I don't think, um, and maybe she even had to, but one of the women was had to have an affair with the CEO um, to get inside information. So uh, it, it, Raj Rajaratan was a pretty ugly uh, story. And his, his hedge fund was the Galleon hedge fund. 
But Rumi was one of his uh, sources there at, at one of the um, chip, Silicon Valley chip firms. He had big inroads in the tech firms. You seem to be a magnet breaking these stories. These people gravitate towards you that you, you come out and you, you know, do the interviews. What do you think they all have in common or where did they go wrong? Did, did the egos get in the way or they can't say yeah. no? What do you, you think is in common with all of them? I, I thought you were going to say, where did, I, where did I go wrong hanging out with all these guys? It's <laughs> a good question. You know, it, it's funny. It, you know, I, I can actually tie this back to Lake Forest a little bit. One of the things that, yeah. you know, when, when David Sweet was interviewing me, I was saying that, um, you know, I grew up in Lake Forest with all these big business guys. And, uh, you know, I was when I was it was it was during the war when I was away at school and stuff. And people would say these business guys are really bad guys. And it's funny, over time, I suddenly realized the most ethical people that I'd ever met in my life were the people I grew up with in Lake Forest. I dedicated half the book to my dad, which I said to dad, who gave me the moral foundation that Bernie Madoff never had. Bernie Madoff grew up in the shadow of failure. His father was a failure. He lacked some kind of a moral code. And a lot of these guys that, um, you know, been on my show, that you look at them, and they, they were corner cutters, they were fraudsters, or they were Ponzi guys, or they made one small step that was wrong, but they kept going. They didn't know where the line was. And I realized, I'd, luckily, I'd grown up in Lake Forest with these, with these fathers um, that were just highly ethical, humble people. And I was really impressed. And we grew up with mothers at a time when a lot of, of mothers didn't work, but they, they, they did great volunteer jobs. They sacrificed for their kids. They sacrificed for their, their husband's careers and stuff. And I was surrounded by people that did good works, who took honesty for granted, who said that you didn't cross lines that you shouldn't be crossing. And what I took for granted turns out to be not exactly the way that a lot of people grew up. So I actually give a lot of this credit to Lake Forest. And, the, and, my, and my family that I grew up with and my friends and family, you know, it sounds like you know, maybe an old Huck Finn, Mark Twain story. But this place was a kind of a place of magic that I grew up with. And, you know, then I ended up out east for the rest of my life. You know, having a moral code is important. And learning to tell the truth is important. And learning to be humble is important. And, to, you know, do stuff for other folks. And I got to say, Lake Forest, Lake Forest was an awfully good place. And I know still is to grow up. So I was lucky. Well, you know, Jim, people say, well, you know, they should teach this in business school. How the hell are you going to, if you're not a good person, okay, if if you don't have the foundation, like you're talking about, how do you teach it? You know, is it, what's your thoughts on that? I think it's exactly right. I think that, I mean, I think teaching ethics in business school makes sense, but anybody that thinks that you can, um, you know, go to school to pick up your ethics or go to school to pick up your moral fiber uh, or your character is deluding themselves a a little bit. And I'll tell you, one of the ironies about this is that um, a Harvard Business School professor of ethics called Bernie Madoff and in his book um, talked to him. And I ended up uh, interviewing the same professor. And so I went to Bernie and I said, you know, Bernie, this guy said that he asked you about your son's suicide and that you basically didn't even care about it. Bernie said the truth was the guy taped him illegally, was supposed to be an ethics professor, that he thought he totally misrepresented the story, that Bernie said that he'd actually been put on suicide watch himself. Um, But the professor 
you know, that Bernie was not good at showing remorse and he, he burnt, he blew that out of proportion. And by coincidence, I had interviewed in my huge pantheon of crime people, two other people that this guy had interviewed, one of whom was Dennis Kozlowski, both of whom said that the professor totally misrepresented himself. So it's kind of ironic that the professor of ethics apparently didn't live up to his own uh, own ideals. But, yeah, uh, but yeah, I think yeah. you're right, though. I think you're totally right that, you know, people need to be accountable ultimately to themselves. And um, ethics doesn't grow on trees. You don't buy it like you do it at a CVS or a Walmart. But you can charge tuition for it. Okay. Trump University, you know, you can go to uh... <laughs> no, no, poli- no politics. I just no, no, no. There's never politics on this show. Only uh, school board election time. Oh, my God, Jim, you should see the place. Hey, talk to us about Netflix, man. What'd they say? Uh, 30 days, uh, 100 million. What's the story? Yeah, Netflix said that. Uh, well, first off, this is part of the uh, benefit, unfortunately, for Bernie. But Bernie dying yeah. suddenly because, I, you know, I had a dream that the book would be a documentary at some point. But we actually got four production companies came to us before the book came out because Bernie died that two week period. Right. And so I didn't even know how they heard of the book, but they started coming to us. So I had to go find an agent. Right. And um, I didn't know, I had no Hollywood, um, you know, connections or anything and was able to get an agent at CAA, but uh, CAA connected me with the, what they call the top true crime documentary guy named Joe Berlinger. He did a one on, on Epstein, well, White, Jeffrey Epstein, Whitey Bulger, and he's done a whole bunch of other murder ones. And he's a really nice guy. Netflix makes an offer directly. Normally, they go, the production company comes to Netflix, and Netflix says, yeah, we'll fund that. And then the production company comes back to me, or to the guy they want to buy the book from, and does it through them. But they went directly over the head to the extent that Joe Berlinger's people and Joe did a, a Zoom with me, right? So I'm yeah. thinking like, okay, I've got to get down on my knees here and beg Joe Berlinger to be interested in my book. Before we even start, Joe goes, now, Jim, I'm not supposed to say this, but my development guy said, I have to have this book. We'll do whatever we take to get this book. And I'm sitting back like, are you kidding me? I've got this guy telling me that I hold the cards. So, you know, um, <laughs> and he was good to his word, too. He went to Netflix and everything. So Netflix then makes an offer to me. And they want to buy the rights to the to the book for a documentary, and they want to buy the rights for the movie. And I said, "Well, I'm not selling the rights to the movie because I want to hold those separately." Yeah. And yeah. Netflix comes back. No, they must be included. So we go back to Joe Berlinger, my my director, and and my agent tells him. He says, "Would you tell Netflix that Jim is actually going to walk if you don't take that out?" And Damned the producer, the director doesn't instantly go to Netflix and say, um, he's going to leave this deal unless you remove that clause. And the next day, Netflix has a new proposal that's taken out that clause. And I'm, ah. I'm, 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 I'm talking to my people at McGraw Hill. I'm saying, like, are you telling me Netflix just backed down to Jim Campbell, who is nobody? And um, <laughs> sure enough, they did, they did take it out. So uh, we're in the counter proposal stage whatever. yeah 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 you're playing and, and joe joe berlinger says uh, now jim if you have any problems just let me know i'll go back to them <laughs> so jim put putting a book together the technology these days yeah you need an agent you need to write content you got any yeah, advice for all the writers that are listening to this show 
they want to get a book together. Well, you know, I I I don't I don't want to be too immodest, but without luck, I wouldn't have gone anywhere. So yeah. I can't really take I really can't take too much credit. I mean, from the fact that Bernie for some reason spoke to me to his family doing that to suddenly he conveniently died um, right before the book uh, was was coming out. But I'll have to tell you this: uh, Harry Markopoulos, he's the uh, whistleblower that everybody, the famous guy. And Harry yeah. and I, you know, we we figured out that we shared one thing: too dumb to quit. We never would give up, and because you know, it sounds like this was easy. This book took ten years, right? And mm. there were several times that um, McGraw Hill was unhappy with my, where I was at. I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't written a book, so I was floundering. But I could never just, you know, bring around to, to quit. I was just, you know, I wasn't going to quit, and I and I and I kept going at it. And I had I had help, and um, McGraw Hill stuck with it. Harry Markopoulos stuck with me. You know, you know, I I would say, you know, find something that you're really passionate about, and that you bring something to the table to, and then if you really really believe in it, you know, go after it until you get it done. And um, you know, even then, you need a big dose of luck to help you out. And so that's kind of like how I feel that I was blessed with with luck and and a good story. Um, and everything. And, you know, timing helps too. Well, you were prepared, right? You were prepared. The opportunity came and you executed. So kudos to you. You know, I, I always say that it's true that you're, you're a radio host too, and you've already demonstrated it. I, I, they say the best way to do a good interview for somebody is to prepare, is to show yeah. that you actually care enough. You read the book or whatever it is, and it makes for an interesting uh, interview. And as, as you've seen, the more that the host knows, it gets the guest so excited because he all the stuff that he's really turned on about the book. Well, the host knows all of that. He knows where to go off, where to get it. And, um, you know, so it's really a tribute to the to a good interview is really the, uh, the honor uh, that the good host knows how to get a uh, release all the good information. Uh, that, that you've done and um, you know you, you you act like you haven't really read it but you, you've asked unbelievable questions so you probably wrote the Kindle book I don't all I know <laughs> well that's a nice thing about Kindle you can go in and highlight and you don't have the audio book because I like to get it on three times speed to get it and match it up and get it going but uh, I'd love to hear your voice on the audio book Jim that'd be fantastic well then I have to you know, I have to confess now the um, audio book is coming out June 29th, right? Which is very oh, soon. I okay. said, you know, I said they, the McGraw-Hill sells the rights to a firm that uses their own actors, right? So I say to McGraw-Hill, but I'm a radio guy. You got to, they have to let me read, don't they? So they said, okay, tell the guy to send, send us a demo. So I had my producer come in. We spent a couple of hours. I did this great demo, send it yeah, to yeah. them. The next day, my editor says, uh, they decided in about five minutes, you didn't make it. I so I did not get to read for my own book. They have an actor. It's coming out though. It will be out there for those of you that prefer only to read audiobooks, but it won't be my voice, unfortunately. I guess I, I have a face for radio and a voice for radio. Oh, they got to let you do the uh, the preface or the intro or something there, Jim. Come on now. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I'm just looking forward to that. But I said it was no good. No good. Let's give you some more plugs here. Uh, your show is <laughs> CampbellBizTalk.com. That's the best way to learn yeah, well, about that's, that's the best way for my show. For the book, the website is MadeoffTalksBook.com. That's MadeoffTalksBook.com. Not only can you get right to Amazon and order it, but it has uh, all of our interviews. This one will be up there as soon as it's out. 
all of our interviews were out there. The reviews that were out there that was done. There have been some articles on us. I was interviewed by the Times of Israel uh, a couple of weeks ago. So that was uh, that was kind of honored to be uh, in an internet. I got to tell you one story that, that, yeah, yeah. that is uh, that is kind of amazing. The um, you know, when, when this all exploded and the tabloids, the New York Post interviewed me and everything, there was this interest in this American Express corporate card bill because Ro, uh, Ruth Madoff was the, charging- The 60 grand, yeah, go, go, yeah. She, yeah. Was, charging, she was charging 57, 60,000 a month on it, like it was a piggy bank, right? But it didn't have anything to do with whether she knew it was a Ponzi scheme. It was, in my example, this case said it was really abusive that the firm, that, you know, the family was using the uh, firm like it was a piggy bank. So anyway, this story gets out in the Daily Mail of London, which is a tabloid. And the next thing I know, there's $57,000 charge all around the world in these foreign papers. Um, I'm seeing that are being sent to me links to $57,000 and Jim Campbell are the only two things I can understand. The rest is in some foreign language. No one ever called me on these things, but all over the world, $57,000, Ruth Madoff, Jim Campbell, the rest are in hieroglyphics, as far as I can tell, because I didn't understand the language. And I said, holy cow, this thing's all around the world. No one even spoke to me. No one knows what it means. They must think it's the Ponzi scheme uncovered or something. But it was an American <laughs> Express bill that that went around the world. <laughs> oh, man, Jim. So how long has the uh, dog and pony show got to go for you? How, how many of these interviews you get, you got? How many are coming up? Yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to, um, I'm actually uh, booking stuff. I'm doing, you know, if you know, Palm Beach Country Club is, was a big country club that Madoff yeah. went down. Well, the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce has invited me to speak at the Breakers Hotel on December 6th in front of 500 people. So um, that's about the farthest booking out right now, December. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people think I might need security because Bernie's not too popular in, in uh, oh, Palm Beach. No. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm just presenting the results, folks. Jim, anything else I miss? Any other ways I can help, you know, send traffic your way? Anything else you want to talk about? No, I'm, I'm just going to be, I'll be out in Lake Forest on, on July 15th at my dad's place. But we'll probably okay. go over to Lake, Lake Forest Bookstore. Uh, the book is available at Lake Forest Bookstore if you want to support your independent yeah. bookstore out there. We're big fans of Lake Forest. And um, I signed a couple of copies when I was out there last week. Uh, other than that, you know, MadoffTalkBooks.com will get you to the uh, website. You can get everything you need to know about it. The uh, Lake Forest podcast will be up there as soon as we get it out there. Uh, <laughs> Amazon.com, the book is out there. The Kindle is out there. The audio book is out December 29th. And, uh, you know, thanks uh, for giving me a whole hour uh, with your folks, uh, Pete. I really enjoyed it. Oh, Jim, this is fantastic. Skill, you got anything to add, huh? Uh, just awesome. <laughs> you just, Absolutely you just awesome. Said, you just sit back and let Jim go. I, Holy! I told you. <laughs> well, Jim, hey, again, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to The Lake Forest Podcast. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Let us know what you like to hear about in the upcoming shows. Again, I'm Pete. I can be reached at Pete at LakeForestPodcast.com. The link will be in the podcast notes below. On behalf of my co-host, Scoo Walker, we thank you for listening. Cue the Lake Forest Scout Band. <laughs>